0: Hello, and welcome to the Bureau 42 Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Case, and joining me today is my guest host,
1: David Stark.
0: Alright, so we're doing something different from the usual Greatest Science Fiction Film Tournament stuff. I'm recording this um, about a week after the passing of Lauren Bacall, who died on August 12th at the age of 89 of a stroke. And... We, and while the majority of Lauren Bacall's filmography has been through non-SF and fantasy works, there is one significant fantasy film where, that she was involved in the in performing in, and that was the English dub of the movie Howl's Moving Castle, directed by H- Hayao Miyazaki. So we're going to be talking about that today. We're also planning on doing a later podcast about one of the movies in Robert Williams' filmography. It's just a question of which one, because he's done a lot more fantasy movies than Lauren Bacall has. Fantasy and science fiction films. So. Get started with Hollow's Moving Castle. So the first question is, what was, when did we first see it and what was our first exposure to it?
1: I actually was able to make it to one of the few theatrical releases that they did in the U.S. for it, of the dub. And it was, I remember, I, I remember loving it at the time. Mainly because it was it was very different than most of the movies coming out around that time, and it was a very pleasant change of pace, also from just the other uh Miyazaki films because it doesn't feel like the other ones which because it's based off a children's story well children's book,
0: yeah, not just a children's book, but a a western written children's book, yeah yeah. I first saw the movie on DVD. I haven't really able been able to get around to seeing any of Hayao Miyazaki's films or see Ghibli's films in general in theaters. It's one of the things where it just situations have never been quite right for seeing the movie in the theater. So I saw it at home on um, DVD, um, watched it basically twice straight, once with the dub, once subtitled. And we can, so I got to say, I, I the English dub, it's, it's probably one of the best Hayao Miyazaki dubs we've gotten from Disney in terms of just sheer cast that we got in this one. We have Billy Crystal, who is an amazing actor. Uh, We have Lauren Bacall as the Witch of the Waste, which she does a great job in the role, but it's a certain degree of situation where her character, unfortunately, isn't in the movie that much, where we can really experience her performance as much as we can Billy Crystal, who gets a lot of screen time. We have Christian Bale, who, at the time the movie came out, had just kind of popped into the limelight with Batman Begins, and actually, he basically went from shooting Batman Begins to doing the voice acting role on this, voice acting on this, and then presumably from here to losing an obscene amount of weight for The Machinist. <laughs> we have, oh boy, we have Blythe Danner, who fans of Broadway musicals may recognize as Martha Jefferson from 1776, both the film version and the Broadway one, run, because they had, I believe, the full Broadway cast for the movie version. And Jean Simmons, not Jean Simmons, lead singer Kiss, but Jean Simmons, J E A N, who is probably about as big a name in terms of classic Hollywood as Lauren Bacall is. She was in, she was in Spartacus. She was in The Big Valley. Star Trek, the Star Trek fans, sci-fi fans in general, to Star Trek fans may recognize her as Admiral Nora Satie from Star Trek: The Next Generation.
1: Oh, yeah. So the drumhead, mm. all sorts of stuff. Oh, one uh, one don't want to forget about is uh, the voice of Howl's apprentice, as it were, Markle, is Josh Hutcherson, who back then was not known for much, but now he is PETA in the Hunger Games movies. Ah, I forgot about that. And voice acting fans in general will
0: recognize the brief appearance of Crispin Freeman toward the end of the movie as well. So we must talk to about the, talk about the film's plot. It's an adaptation of the book of the same name, uh, Howl's Moving Castle, by Deanna Wynne-Jones, with some plot adjustments. Just a few. <laughs> yeah, just a few. i I have not read the book, but I did go read over a few of the uh, plot, adjust, plot changes. The film follows Hattie, a. Sorry, Hattie. Um, Sophie, a hatter. Uh, I got myself turned around. Who basically, as she gets off work, she ends up running into a powerful wizard by the name of Howell, who is a very handsome young man as some kind of vain young man. We're kind of introduced to Howl by reputation first, uh, through some very good world-building, through background dialogue. Um, this is very much a world where wizards and witches are very much a thing that exists, but it also looks a lot like with has a uh, sort of late 1800s and early 1900s level of technology.
1: Yeah, what it really reminded me of was Full Metal Alchemist and their sort of world, with witches and wizards taking the place of the alchemists, because you have sort of that very much... It sort of had like a Roaring Twenties feel in the sort of costuming, as well as the about level of technology. I mean, a few exceptions, of course. There are those like personal flyers, but yeah. yeah. And through the world building, we know we learn that I mean, witches and wizards are very much a thing.
0: Some of them are just very easy to work with. Others are to be afraid of. and Two of the big ones are, are Howl, who is a handsome young man who will steal your heart, perhaps literally, if he finds you attractive, and the Witch of the Waste. We also learn through some very brief dialogue in the background that there is a war brewing and it's caused by the disappearance of the prince of a neighboring kingdom. It's one of those things where it's actually an incredibly important plot point, particularly for something that happens at the very end of the movie, but if you're not paying attention at all, the the reveal at the end of the movie comes literally right out of nowhere. Sophie fairly quickly runs into both Howl, who rescues her from the attentions of some soldiers, before getting her into his own problems, and then the Witch of the Waste, who checks up on Sophie because she ends up, because of her encounter with Howl, and basically after Sophie puts her foot down and tells the Witch of the Waste to leave her shop because it's closed, the Witch of the Waste basically puts a curse on her to make her a 80-something-year-old woman, at which point when Sophie wakes up the ne- next day and realizes that the, the curse hasn't left, it's, it's sticking around, she heads out to the wastes to find a wizard or somebody to help her remove the curse and ends up in the titular moving castle of Howl And... There we also meet, we first meet Calcifer, who's a fire demon who keeps the castle running, who is played by Billy Bristol in a role which, from the uh, behind-the-scenes voice acting stuff, involves a lot of improv. I mean, he's doing the original lines, but he's doing lots of subtle variations on the original dialogue, and he, he kind of steals every scene he's in.
1: Oh, he absolutely steals every scene
0: he's in. I mean, Lauren Bacall, in, in her scenes, which, like, a scene where we introduced her as the Witch of the Ways and some of her later scenes later in the movie she does a great job she 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 brings a lot of gravitas to the role like we get scenes with her as the witch of the waste later on in sharing a scene with calcifer and billy crystal just grabs the scene and runs with it
1: yeah no offense to lauren bacall at all but billy crystal took calcifer and made him his own whereas she just sort of she did the part and she did it well but that's about it she she did she did it well, but Billy Crystal was amazing as calcifer
0: yeah, so while Sophie is in Howl's Castle the next morning she learns a few interesting things about the house that it it has a door that actually opens in several different places, and that Hal has two at least at least two different cover identities that he's using to do business and make money. She also comes to the realization of just how much of a pigsty Howl's castle is that apparently he Cannot be bothered to clean, neither can his apprentice. And so, like, the, the first maybe first act of the movie is Sophie making Howl's castle more home-like. Cleaning things up, and to a certain degree, it causing Howl to end up throwing a bit of a fit, because she moved his stuff, pretty much.
1: Yeah. She moved his... From the sounds of it, hair dye? Yep. Because we're, we're given the shot of this completely filthy and chromatic bathroom. And it's just covered in color everywhere. And she cleans it, of course, and organizes everything. But it seems that Howl just knows where everything is by memorization, rather than by where it should be. So it seems he grabbed the wrong bottle. <laughs> and yeah, he, he comes
0: out next morning and goes, Oh my goodness, you messed with my hair potions! And it is, his hair is, like, bright red. Which, considering the castle is arguably bigger on the inside... <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think the doctor would be a bit more accepting of, of suddenly being a redhead. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I bet he wants to find that potion.
0: <laughs> yep. So, i gonna get into Christian Bale's performance as Howl, and I got to say, I got a lot of his Bat- of his Bruce Wayne and Batman performances in this. Yeah. In particular, like he, he spends more time as Howl, which he does as kind of the jovial, cheerful cover identity Bruce Wayne. And we actually get more of that of that performance out of Christian Bale here than he does in all three Batman movies in just one film, and he is he is charming, but I don't know if he as Howell i don't know if he brings the the right amount of charm if that makes any sense is it's it's a little subdued or what the role kind of calls for
1: well, it's interesting because it really seems like he is doing his Batman thing where he's affecting charm or as opposed to actually being charming. Sort of just going through the motions of what charm should be, which kind of... I'm not sure if this is what was intentional, but it does sort of make sense, because as we find out later on, he did give his heart away, so if that's sort of affecting how he can do it, it works for me. Yeah. The the one time we really get that sort of energy organically from Christian Bale, as opposed
0: to noticeably putting on a character, Mm -hmm. is the scene where where he gets the hair the wrong color and kind of throws a magical temper tantrum.
1: Oh, oh, his tantrum is... This movie is worth watching just that scene. It is hilarious.
0: Absolutely. Then I bring up the Batman performance because the other thing is when is in the evening is how basically shape changes into a bird, goes out and fights both fights against both sides on this war to try and bring the war to an end to stop this war.
1: Okay. Is that what he was doing? Okay, that was very unclear to me. Yeah, that going from his dialogue, it's not explained
0: well, but going from his dialogue and kind of reading between the lines, it sounds like what his goal is, because partly relating also to his reluctance to go to the castle, because he doesn't actually want to take sides. So, and when he comes back from this, when he's in the sort of bird form, if he talks well, when he talks he talks in the batman voice
1: <laughs> <laughs> i i could not keep a straight face it was like, when he did that
0: yeah and yeah it, it, it is kind of silly particularly cuz the first time i saw the movie i actually saw it before i saw batman begins so i hadn't made the connection yet but watching it rewatching it now after having seen all three films on the nolan batman trilogy this kind of went well so christian bale is Bat-bird? <laughs> bird <man. laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, there was that bit. And, so, the, the, the war... We'll get to how sort of the technology is depicted here, because we have the more, man, more mundane technological side of things. We see the, the soldiers basically wearing World War One era uniforms, or World War one esque uniforms and equipment. We have the train, we have late 1800s, early 1900s, rail railroads. And during the battle scenes, when we get, we have Howl fighting the airships and we see the uh, battle from the ground. it, it It's kind of weird because it's sort of like, it looks like World War Two being fought with World War One era tactics.
1: Yeah, it's also the, just sort of flying. The airships, they have these wings that beat, and a very... It's a, it's interesting. It's, sort yeah,
0: of... it's not quite an ornithopter. The personal flying machines kind of look and work like ornithopters. Yeah. But the airships aren't quite how we, we sort of think of ornithopters in terms of they have these big, like, multiple wings that beat very slowly. And, like, when they sh- launch sort of magicians as fighters to attack Howl, they kind of pop out the rear like they're coming out of an ovipositor. Mm-hmm. Ovipositor. No, but a, um, yeah, the, the cloaka of a bird. It's, it, it, it's, when it comes to Hayao Miyazaki's mechanical design in Hayao Miyazaki's movies, compared to Nausicaa, compared to Porcaroso, this is the weirdest that it ever has ever gotten.
1: Yeah, because there's very little design sort of continuity between the things. Like, the little personal flyers don't look anything like the big flyers. Big flyers and Everything has its own separate design, and there's no continuity of... De- you, you can't tell how one thing just sort of led to another, led to another. Because yeah. they've got, like, basic cars, trucks, and then which look like very much their counterparts from the early 20th century,
0: and flyers, which... Don't look like anything that's ever existed in the
1: real world. Not even a little. I mean, the little personal flyers kind of look like... Actually, they look a little like... Uh, Canoes, really, with wings on the side that you stand on.
0: Yeah, and, and you steer with a nautical steering wheel.
1: Yeah, which apparently you can push forward and pull back to gain altitude or lose it. Yeah. <laughs> the physics of this world make no sense, even <laughs> with magic. <laughs> Indeed. Oh, but apparently they have modern-day uh, electrical outlets, as we, can, as we get in that one shot when Howell unplugs all of them on an airship. He just reaches in with his magic and just unplugs a bunch of the things and makes the airship crash. And and I was just like, why were they plugged in that way? <laughs> yeah,
0: it's it, it, it's kind of weird. Other part of it, as so we get, get through here, is Sophie begins to fall in love with Hal. And this gets to kind of an interesting, while well, she's trying to sort of tell him about her curse, but she can't because the conditions of the curse are you can't talk about the curse. It's sort of like Fight Club in that way. And so we get to the interesting thing with The Curse where, sort of like in Poco Rosso, another Miyazaki movie where under certain conditions, the main character will revert to his normal self as opposed to the pig head he's been cursed with. Under certain situations, Sophie will revert from the older self that she's stuck with in The Curse to back to her younger self.
1: But we're never given, like, why she does this. It, it It's sort of implied that when she's
0: speaking out of Intense emotional love—that that's what does it. Okay, but again, it's one of the things where you have to be paying attention and kind of make a not so much leap of logic to, to come to the realization. But it's certainly a case where not all the clues are there. I mean, a lot of them are enough that you can kind of that you can kind of make the assumption, but it's not enough for a real definite answer. We and a couple points. Of this is when um, Howell is told to come to the court of the king and his mentor Suleiman who's actually a combination of two different characters from the books his actual mentor who at the start of the books is has long since passed away and the court magician Suleiman who is in the books a guy and Sophie shows up at the same time as the Witch of the Waste does again and there is this kind of interesting scene where Sophie and the Witch of the Waste both have to go up this incredibly long flight of stairs before getting to the actual par- palace. And we have Sophie going up, carrying a dog, and actually getting her a little faster than the Witch of the Waste does. It's actually be faster than the Witch of the Waste does. The The scene doesn't really do a lot for the plot, but more for sort of character development, I guess.
1: Yeah, because it-, it really shows that Sophie, even though she's been cursed by the Witch of the Waste, you know, she's had this horrible thing thrust upon her, she's still willing to, you know, show empathy for this Character. Not, she explicitly doesn't help her, but she does sort of root her on. <laughs> yeah. um uh, and On the other hand, she also shows her good naturedness by, she
0: kind of deliberately slows herself down by picking up this dog who was following her, who she thought was Howl in disguise, up the steps. I'll go to feel that, before to feel that, no, in fact, it's not actually Howl. It's the,
1: uh, I don't know if you call it magical familiar. Yeah, I'd say of familiar. Suleiman. And Suleiman has all of these identical attendants that look like 12-year-old blonde boys. Not just blonde boy, it's... They have the same ha- haircut as Howl, as young Howl, when you see in the flashback. Oh! Oh, that's right! Oh my god, I did not notice that, but you're absolutely correct.
0: Yeah. Huh. It is the hair colors change, whereas Howl has black hair,
1: the attendants are blonde. Uh, the same color of blonde as the hair on her chicken-legged dog, familiar. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So... Suleiman Suleiman goes and
0: talks. well has Sophie come in and talk to her while she basically lures the witch of the waste. While Suleiman's also lured the witch of the waste into a trap to basically sort of depower her. Basically, okay, you you, you've messed around long enough. We're we're taking away your magical powers through a bunch of magic light bulbs,
1: giant light bulbs. (laughs) Yeah. Uh...
0: So basically, this leads to a situation where we have the now-depowered Witch of the Ways, who also is somewhat senile now, now moving into the castle along with Sophie and also the dog. And so after this, the plot basically goes to, relates to the fact that because Howl is going out transforming into this sort of bird thing and fighting to try and stop the war, each time he does it, he kind of loses a bit of his humanity. And the way to kind of restore this is through... Heal the curse he put on himself, and also that the calcifer is related to. And but much like with Sophie and her curse, Calcifer can't exactly explain what explain what the full con- details conditions of the curse are. And we learned at some point in the past. Howl basically caught a shooting star, which is in fact a magical being, and gave it his heart to live in or bound it to or something like that, and that, that shooting star was in fact Calcifer.
1: Well, yeah, well, it, it was implied that, you know, given what we see, that he gave it his heart so it could continue to exist, because the other yeah. ones we saw just sort of hit, like ran for a bit, and then just sort of popped out of existence, so it seemed he had some s- a small amount of pity for Calcifer, or concern. Yeah. So to kind of wrap things up, because it's
0: the movie has long because the movie has long sequences of not much plot happening, a certain degree of character development happening, lots of character development happening, but not much real plot. I could probably compare it to. Oh, this is this this is really the most unique of all of Hayao Miyazaki's movies in terms of narrative density. Nausicaa is an incredibly narratively dense film. Lots of plot happening really fast. To a certain degree, same thing with, like, Princess Mononoke and even Spirited Away to a certain degree.
1: Well, yeah, everything in those films uh, is driving the plot forward, whereas this one, it just sort of, it knows where it's going to end up heading, so it just sort of sits back and lets the characters just sort of interact with each other.
0: Yeah, it's, I I guess the, the description would be, the comparison would be the difference between, like, taking a road trip to a location or taking the train particularly either going by freeway or taking the train, because if you, like, go on Google Maps or whatever and do their directions, you'll find that taking the train actually most times was actually slower than driving from point A to point B. And for the driver, driving is the the more active action, whereas with taking the train, you can sit back, relax, look at the scenery, and you're not doing much of anything. And so what we have here is it's like narratively taking the train ride as opposed to driving. It's... a Sort of a longer trip, you're not actually doing as much over the course of the trip, but you get in- lots of interesting things to look at along the way that you might not get to see otherwise
1: yeah that's that's definitely one way to do it. I think the closest comparison I would make would be if you've ever played D and d and the dm has to leave the room for whatever reason and it just says, "Just talks amongst yourselves in character. that's really what it seems. <laughs> There's no way the plot's going anywhere, but you're still getting the characters doing stuff,
0: yeah. Probably just talk real quick about one character who haven't talked about very much, which is a animated scarecrow known as Turnip Head, who basically, who has no lines <gasps> for most for film and cover. Being a scarecrow. He kind of serves as an assistant through various courses of parts of the story, whether sort of showing up at a useful time with something that helps out our characters, whether an umbrella or a walking stick for Sophie, or helping Sophie hang up the laundry. Acting as one end. <laughs> yeah. So, what basically happens is, so the, the castle, ha- uh, Howl's moved the castle closer to Sophie's hometown, and the town has also unfortunately gotten close to the front lines of the war, and Howl is out fighting, and so they move the castle to go save Howl, water gets splashed on Calcifer, things start falling, literally falling apart, the castle literally starts falling apart, and Howl manages to, other Sophie manages to save Howl, sort of by putting his heart back in him, but it causes the last bits of the castle that were still animated to basically completely fall apart, and our heroes are about to suffer a really anticlimactic sudden death when they are saved by Turnip Head, who is then revealed to be the missing long-lost prince.
1: Revealed when Sophie kisses him, because, of course, true love's kiss solves all problems. And then (laughs) this poor guy... He's
0: in love with Sophie, but Sophie's completely. Sophie and Hal are in love with each other. So basically, he says, "Okay, I'll go back and stop the war, and I'll come back later because hey, hearts change." <laughs> the line. Yeah. Yeah. Good luck with that.
1: <laughs> well, he could have been just talking about his own.
0: <laughs> yeah. So I mean, I'm brushing over lots of pl- lots of bit here, but then again, there's lots of movie ends mentioned. It's just it's just dialogue. So. I haven't talked much about the design of the castle. It, it It's really interesting in terms... Uh, I was watching the um, behind-the-scenes stuff about it and, and uh, interviews with the guy who wrote the... Uh, Adapt the English dub script. And he compared it to the animation of Terry Gilliam. And I kind of see that. Yeah. It, it's not animated in a fashion where you see all the moving parts and that sort of thing. It's not like... Airplanes and movies where you see, or cars where you see the wheels turning and depending on, and the exhaust pop going out the back and possibly even the uh, engine parts moving or that sort of thing. It's a bunch of individual segments which all kind of move together. Not quite like cutouts, like with your, your Monty Python, Gilliam, Terry Gilliam animations,
1: but kind of similar in a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's gorgeous to look at, because it's utterly unlike most other animated vehicles. And it's a castle, so... Vehicle, I said, sub- but it moved. I'm gonna stick with vehicles. <laughs> yeah. Other interesting
0: notes with the voice acting. I mentioned Gene Simmons is the voice of old Sophie. It's it mentioned that in the original Japanese dub, that the same actors playing both young Sophie and old Sophie, which is, to a certain degree, a significant acting cha- voice acting challenge. It's playing the same character, basically at two different ages. For the English dub, we have Gene Simmons as Old Sophie and Emily Mortimer, who... I looked up her IMDb profile, and she's not been in a lot. She's been in Shutter Island. She was in Cars 2.
1: Oh, that's not something you want to brag about.
0: (laughs) She had a brief recurring role on 30 Rock, and...
1: Oh, she was in the Pink Panther movies. The new ones.
0: Yeah. Uh. <laughs> yeah. She's in the newsroom. There we go. They're like, looking for like a, uh, a role that's really prominent for her. And it's like, like the newsroom. She played Mackenzie McHale in the newsroom. And that's like the main thing I really see sticking out. So um, while we I can't talk about how the movie fared in the Greatest Science Fiction Film Tournament, I can talk about how it well, fared at the box office. This movie did remarkably well. I can't speak about whether it made its money back in terms of the using the sort of yardstick of, the, of making double the production budget, but the uh, total worldwide gross for the movie at the box office is just over $235 million. I can't really say how much that fared compared to the rest of Miyazaki's movies because we don't have full lifetime gross information for his entire filmography. We have basically... Information on three of the movie, not sorry three but uh, five of his movies, the ones of the ones that made got a U.S. release. Howl's Moving Castle is like second on the list behind Spirited Away, and Howl's Moving Castle also got nominated for a Academy Award for Best Animated Film, which is not too surprising. When they introduced the category, they introduced it the year that Spirited Away came out, and it Spirited Away won it.
1: No, uh, no, uh, the first winner was Shrek for Best Animated The oh, year before. Oh, I, I thought
0: Spirit of the Way was the first year. Oh, uh,
1: no, Spirit of the Way was the second. The first year was, like, really slim pickings.
0: Okay. Alright, <laughs> so, so. it went to Shrek. Okay, so the second winner <laughs> uh, Best Animated Feature. As far as award stuff go, nominated for a Saturn Award for Best Animated Feature, did not win. Not to see what else was nominated that year. It won a bunch of other. It got nominated for like lots and lots of awards. It won the Nebula Award for best screenplay for 2007. The Nebula Award is so the Hugo Award is your pop was your is basically your popular people's choice science fiction awards. For those who aren't familiar, Nebula Award is the professionals one. It's the one that the science fiction writers association does. So best animated feature, is your Hellbound Castle lost to The Corpse Bride. I haven't seen that movie, so I can't speak for how good it is. For which category? As best animated feature at the Saturn Awards. Oh,
1: Corpse Bride? I saw Corpse Bride when it first came out. I haven't seen it since. Once was really enough for me because, eh, to be honest, it's pretty standard Tim Burton fare. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you love Tim Burton, go see it. I mean, it is Tim Burton. It's a It's a Tim Burton film. It's got Johnny Depp. It's... I when I I say it's more of the same, but I don't want to. But I don't want that to sound like negative because Tim Burton's on his game here. So is Johnny Depp. They're doing what they do, and they do it well. But there's really no new material that we haven't seen from these two before.
0: All right. So yeah, for like the for Nebula Awards, it wasn't up, well. House Castle won. I will admit it wasn't under against a uh, lot of competition. The competition was Batman Begins and the Battlestar Galactica episode Unfinished Business which I don't recall off the top of my head. And it was not nominated, nominated for a Hugo Award that I can see. Probably want to double-check that. Ah, okay, the the list was incomplete on IMDb. Howl's Moving Castle was up against Batman Begins, the Battlestar Galactica episode Unfinished Business, and the Doctor Who episode The Girl in the Fireplace.
1: Which, as far as competition goes, it's not super strong, but it's alright. The well, Girl in the Fireplace was a really good episode. Although, yeah. a little heavy-handed at times. But very creative. And for
0: two thousand seven for Best Dramatic Presentation Long Form, uh yeah, was not nominated. Was all pretty much all science fiction that year No, science fiction, actually uh um, all live action that year with the exception of a Scanner Darkly, which we'll be talking about later on the greatest science fiction film tournament stuff, when we'll probably do a Philip K. Dick month, or a Philip K. Dick themed sequence. So pretty much covered all the bases. Anything else we've overlooked about the movie?
1: Uh no. Um it's definitely a good movie to go back and watch a second time because there's a lot of little things that just, like, the first time I saw the opening sequence, I was like, oh, it's a standard. Second time, there's, like, tons of hints about this enormous military buildup and how a war is coming. And it's just full of little things that you don't, that you miss the first time because you don't know to be looking for them.
0: That's true. This is probably, of, Mi- of Miyazaki's movies, the one that, stand- that encourages repeat viewing the most. Just because so many little bits are just hidden in the background and in sort of supporting dialogue and background dialogue that we wouldn't normally hear otherwise. So this is probably our probably been our shortest episode in a while. <laughs> so so we'll next time we don't we don't quite have anything planned for what exactly the next episode will be. But keep listening to this feed and keep subscribing to this feed for the next installment of the Greatest Science Fiction Film Tournament podcast and other podcasts. This is currently only going out on the, uh, mass, on the Beer 42 Master Podcast audio feed. So we have Blaine's Comic Book Physics, Big Screen Batman, which will eventually be turning into Silver Screen Superheroes, and The X-Files retrospective. So
1: until next time, I'm Alex Case. I'm David Stark. Thank you very much for listening.